Hi, this is Amanda from Silicon Valley, California. Dusted is a story wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. everyone and welcome to the show i'm alistair stevens i'm lonnie diane rich and this is dusted your all sound no fury buffy the vampire slayer <laughs> podcast maybe a little fury <laughs> this week we're watching episode five of season three of angel fredless yes this episode aired on october 22nd 2001 and is written by mare smith with herself and scott murphy as story editors which is a thing that they've been doing all season so far mm-hmm. that's about to stop this is the fifth of 11 episodes smith will write for angel and her highest ranking on the big list is for over the rainbow which was part of the pilea arc which comes in at number 10 let me just say that i have loved discovering the work of mir smith yeah. <laughs> as we move through this viewing uh-huh. of angel not a writer that i was terribly aware of when you yeah. sit down to compile the big list of everyone who's worked on Buffy, everyone who's worked on Angel. Mayor Smith, for me, was not a name that would float naturally to the top of that list. Immediately to sure. here we are. Mm-hmm. And I've been thoroughly enjoying these episodes. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. This is one of my favorites. Oh, that's great. I think Fredless is such a great piece of character work. It does things that Angel does far too infrequently. So this is not just a great episode for me, but a really refreshing episode too. This episode was directed by Marita Grabiak. I hope I'm not savaging that name too much. (laughs) This is Grabiak's first episode of Angel. She will direct five in total and two episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in its last season. In addition to her work on those two shows, she has pretty much directed at least one episode of every TV show you've ever loved. Gilmore Girls, (laughs) Firefly, Battlestar Galactica, Wonderfalls. And let me tell you, the list of people who worked on Wonderfalls is a short, short list. (laughs) Lost, Alias, Eureka, Bones, and most recently, American Horror Story. She is serious business. No, she really is. And let me tell you, it just makes my heart lift when I see a female name in the director's chair. Sure. It doesn't happen that often now. It certainly didn't happen that often then. I like the fact that we have women directing for me. It just it makes me feel good. We need sure. to kind of even out that playing field a little bit. More women, well, more people of color above the line. I love seeing that. You're absolutely right, mm-hmm. but not just directing in yeah. this instance. Directing beautifully. I yeah. think this is a great great looking episode that has to clear some very high hurdles indeed. We're going to be talking about some of the CGI effects later in this episode, which perhaps haven't aged as well as they might have. (laughs) But in 2001, I think the bug demon effects look fantastic. Yeah, I'm I'm not quite you're, you're with you. You're a little more skeptical. I'm that. a little more skeptical of that and this episode. There are a lot of things that I love in this episode. The things that you love in this mm-hmm. episode, I also love in the episode, but the things that aren't good, I feel like kind of mar the the where this episode had the potential to go and what it had the potential to do. The potential episode that it could have been, I can definitely see loving as much as you love this episode. I think I'm less forgiving of the sins than you are. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. <laughs> I am going to try and buoy you up with my enthusiasm for this episode okay. as we move through the beat by beat, which we begin in the Hyperion. Wesley, Gunn, and Cordelia are sorting the contents of the weapons cabinet while Fred waits anxiously for Angel to return from meeting with Buffy. Wesley reassures her that Angel and Buffy are never, ever, ever going to happen. 
and then illustrates the point with Cordelia in a little community theater improv. This I know exists to make your heart glad. Oh my God. I love this whole thing. One of the things that I love the most is that Alexis Denisoff is an American doing yes. a British accent. Then he goes into his Amer American accent and it sounds like he's a British person doing an American accent, overplaying the R's, doing this whole thing. Yeah, it, it's the Monty Python American accent. It is so adorable <laughs> and I love it because instead of going to his own natural American accent, he does a slightly bad American accent from the perspective of a British person I think that's fantastic. How is his British accent? Oh, it's unimpeachable. Okay, because it seems great no, to James me. James Masters gets a lot of attention for his accent work as Spike. And Which he's in the beginning was not good. great, though, no, right? That's true, though. It also wasn't quite as, as targeted and specific as yes. it has become. Mm -hmm. His accent work is generally very, very good. He mm -hmm. slips up very rarely. Alexis Denisov is extraordinary. I believe him as a British person sure. for this moment. When I first watched it, I was like, oh my God, it's so cute watching him do an American accent. And I was like, oh wait, no, he is American. Yes. It is adorable. I love Layers. that whole thing. I love him and Cordelia playing Buffy and Angel. Um, I love the sense of humor that we get from Wesley. Wesley has been a little more serious lately. Usually when we get funny stuff from Wesley, it's at his expense. It's goofy Wesley. Yeah. This is Wesley actually genuinely in the fiction deliberately being funny. I love that. Being funny but also being emotionally connected yeah. because he's trying to reassure Fred yes. and too rarely particularly within Angel do characters turn to comedy do mm -hmm. they actually within the fiction as you say make jokes to try right, and amuse they're and comfort funny each other. themselves yes. within the fiction it's, it's an easier thing to it. run to a joke that's at a character's expense rather than a joke that the character is actually playing exactly out. right yeah mm -hmm. so I absolutely love this opening scene and I love too that we're Allowing Fred's crush on Angel to simply be. Mm -hmm. We're acknowledging it. We're not hiding it. There's no false conflict about it whatsoever. Yes, we're not Everybody is on the same there. page. Mm -hmm. But no one is mocking her for it right. or trying to dissuade her or trying to take care of her. Mm -hmm. We're just acknowledging, no, Fred, this is your emotional reality yeah. right now. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. That is a thing to be respected. And that, too, far too rare in fiction generally. Yes. Far, far too rare in Angel. So mm -hmm. I love this cold open. And I even like Angel's return. Maybe you should both bite me. Yes. Is maybe a little written. <laughs> but I like it very much. Angel returns in the midst of the drama. His rendezvous with Buffy didn't go particularly well. And he doesn't care to discuss it. I scream with Fred, though. Sounds like a good idea. So the evening does take them all the way into the sewers in pursuit of a Dursler beast. They approach the lair of the monster, and Fred retreats to the surface, leaving Angel to face danger alone. I like this moment with Fred, where she's down in the sewers, and she's talking about how comfortable she is there, that she... She kind of has become very comfortable in the cave, mm -hmm. feeling protected on all sides, even though she's down in a sewer tracking, you know, like a, a really big monster. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I find that to be like a really nice character beat for Fred. This is the fifth episode of the third season. So we've been dealing with Fred for eight episodes now. Mm -hmm. And we've been dealing with her writing on the walls. Yes. Writing on mm -hmm. her cave walls, writing on the walls of her room for that long, too. This is the episode that picks up all of that raw material, all of that potential, mm -hmm. and puts it 
to use. Yes. This retroactively makes me love Fred writing on the walls more no, than I ever have. It makes it all worth it because yeah. in the beginning it could be manic pixie dream damaged girl. Exactly. You know, and it's exactly. and it's one of those things that I can see people being like, okay, whatever, but this absolutely does make it worth it. I also really love this moment from Angel when he says Dursler beasts are pretty Faulknerian, all sound, no fury. Angel has been around for a long time. Yep. He is an educated person. He has read everything. He has seen everything. His pop culture references are going to go deep and they're going to go long. <laughs> and I love, you, yes, <laughs> I love when we get a, 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 a pop culture reference that is was more poppy 50, 60, 100 years ago. And the fact that he can, he can pull on all of this right. stuff. And it's nice to see Angel represented as a book reader, as somebody who has literary knowledge who has cultural knowledge. I like that. And we see more of that in Angel as we move forward. It's one of the things I really like that they're folding into his characterization. Mm -hmm. And better yet, he's not talking down to Mm -hmm. Fred. Yes. They're having what seems to be, yes, an unusual evening by Mm -hmm. our standards perhaps, but a really companionable evening. Mm -hmm. I I really like this cold open. It works for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Maybe we do lean a little hard on the Fred leaving Angel to face danger in the sewers by himself. Maybe we we have one too many beats as we close out (laughs) that scene, but it works for me. I think it's nice, yeah. After the credits, the organization of the weapons cabinet continues. Gunn is eager for a vision, but the ironic cuts don't just come when you call these days. A missing daughter case, though, is enough to capture the intention of the investigators, particularly when the solution to the mystery is in the main credits of the show. Everyone, meet Fred's folks. Yes, Mr. and Mrs. Burkle. I love the use of the stubbed toe yeah, to lampshade the ironic cut to Cordelia's vision. Yes. One of the recurring... It's becoming a little self-referential, though, isn't it? This is the thing. <laughs> One of the things that this episode does, which I admire mm-hmm. the most, is demonstrate uh, a thorough awareness, a thorough literacy Yes. in the show's own conventions right. at this point. This is... An episode of Angel written for people who have really been watching Angel carefully. And this show has far too often in the past felt pretty insecure. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. This feels so confident and so much more emotionally ambitious Mm -hmm. than we've seen in, I mean, essentially forever. I don't remember the last time we tried to do a character beat that is as impressive and as multifaceted as the character beat that we're about to hit with Fred. No, I think that that's absolutely true. Although I do think, though, that when a show becomes self-aware, isn't that the singularity? (laughs) (laughs) No. I think that when the show starts making episodes about itself, that's when we get into trouble. This this demonstrates a literacy, not an inclination toward parody. Right. But also, uh, you know, it's a little jab at itself because they really do rely on the irony cuts a lot. So when they They have her her stub her foot. And I do like this joke that we keep going back to, or maybe it makes toast. This little contraption. That's nice. With a nice little, it almost has a a Dalek feel to it because it has a little spatula on the side. Exactly. And the Dalek, of course, is the, the whisk in the toilet plunger. So, uh, so I find it to be nice to have these like these little things kind of built in. It's a little Doctor Who reference. Yeah, and even the foreshadowing there is itself lampshaded, yes. mm-hmm. which I, I really like. This is a very confident and very, uh, very layered piece yes. of writing. Mm-hmm. Before we even get to the performances, which I think are across the board just fantastic, mm-hmm. this is at a script level a really nicely composed piece yes. of work. As the girl herself returns from the sewers with her ice cream cone, she catches a glimpse of her parents and scurries upstairs. 
It's been five years and they haven't seen her. They hired a private detective, which led them to the Hyperion and to Angel, who enters with the Dursler Beast's severed head. So this is our introduction yes. to Roger and Trish Burkle, mm-hmm. who are just delightful in the episode as a whole, but who spend the first half of the episode resolutely on the back foot. Being lampshaded as as evil, which is yes. a, a really weird choice. This is the thing that kind of brings this episode down a bit in my estimation, um, because we spend the first full half of this episode uh, playing it as though these guys are evil. And then there's the twist in the back half that, oh, they're not evil. Fred's just, you know, afraid of facing them, which I think is a really interesting kind of psychological place to be. Mm-hmm. But this this lampshading of them as as evil people who are coming to get Fred, um, it, I don't like that. And that's the whole first half of the episode. Well, it's not the whole first half, but I mean, it's, it's a really significant mm-hmm. element in the first half. And you're right. This is the only element of... False conflict yeah. in the entire story. Everything else is beautifully motivated, mm-hmm. beautifully respected. We get some really deep character work, but this inclination to cast doubt and suspicion on the Burkles, yes, I think is counterproductive. And I think it's it's truly unnecessary because we really super lampshade it. Whereas you could have a little hint in there that maybe we're not really sure, and then we see how it turns out. But I feel like they play that card way well, too hard. The only defense of that, I think, is that were this to be more subtle, mm-hmm. we might be less impressed by the investigators because they've been down this road and a number of very similar roads mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Someone shows up looking for someone that you care about. Yeah. 99% of the time, this is going to turn out to be bad news. Yes. <laughs> so the the one defense of this false conflict that I can see is that Angel and company have have done this before. This is not their first emotional rodeo yeah. and they are primed to believe that anyone coming in from the outside, mm-hmm. particularly anyone claiming a, a an existing emotional connection. I mean, the obvious counterpart to this episode is family yeah. back in Buffy, where we right. introduce mm-hmm. cousin Amy Adams and all of Tara's extended family. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing in this episode, or at least in the first act of this episode that suggests that things are going to play out any differently than they did in family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is going to be some macabre twist on family dynamics. Mm-hmm. We don't do that in Angel, but I can't blame Wesley and Cordelia and Gunn for expecting that. Again, no. this I think might yeah. be the breaking point between the show's literacy and self-awareness mm-hmm. and it's slipping toward expectation. Yeah, I don't have a problem with Wesley and Gunn and Cordelia suspecting them. I do have a problem with the show specifically priming us to see them as evil. No, that's fair. That's that's yeah. what I don't particularly care for. But you know what I do love in this scene? Love with my whole and complete heart. <laughs> Tell me. The picture of Winston Churchill that is sitting over Wesley's shoulder. What is not to love? I did not notice. I mean, obviously the picture is deliberately put there to be in the frame. Like Wesley has a Winston Churchill thing and I absolutely love that. <laughs> What do we think of the Dursler beast head? Chekhov's severed demon Chekhov's head. Chekhov's severed demon head. Yeah, I actually kind of like it. I think yeah. that that's actually a pretty good effect. I like the crystals and the calling out to the mm-hmm. crystals. Those will be significant later. I think it's pretty cool. I don't think that the angels kind of goofy playing with the head. It's paper mache. Maybe it's got a little iron in it. Like they play that joke, I think, a little too hard. But yes. overall, you know, it's it's cute. I think you're right 
I'm not sure why the investigators don't have a prepared cover story. Yes. Because this is a publicly accessible business. They are, theoretically at least, expecting clients to come into the Hyperion. Well, maybe that is their cover story, the monster movies. <laughs> that's maybe that's really the best they came up story. with. <laughs> <laughs> Upstairs, Fred tries frantically to clean the writing off her bedroom wall while Angel plays nice with her parents. But when they go up to her room, she has vanished. There's a little suspicious behavior from Roger and Trish, and the investigators are rattled. Fred has never gone outside by herself. What is she running from? In Wesley's office, it's paranoid speculation hour at the Hyperion as they try to figure <laughs> out where Fred has gone. The sewers are a possibility, as is the public library where she used to work. But let's all be clear, Fred is not involved in porn. <laughs> that is such a weird beat. Yeah. At the end of that scene. Yeah. So weird, in fact, that I had a momentary flicker of, wait, are they trying to? And then yes. Yes. Yes, it is mm-hmm. just made explicit in the text. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is the reference that we're making. Now, I know that L.A. in the real world has a certain right. association with the porn industry. And certainly oh, yes. mm-hmm. lots of, of Midwestern and Southern girls have found their way out to the coast. <laughs> but that's not a part of the vision of L.A. that's presented within the text of Angel. Right. Angel yeah. is too demon noir Mm -hmm. to be sexy noir yes right there is i think like the normal la that the rest of us see that exists like over this like dark underbelly in which angel you know conducts his daily business but usually we don't reference that we don't reference the bright shiny la that everybody thinks is out there we live in this this dark space underneath yeah dark but not necessarily sleazy yeah in the way that you would associate a more naturalistic more contemporary vision Mm -hmm. of los angeles with it's just such an odd and and atypical beat for angel it is it's a little weird to even Mm -hmm. acknowledge the existence of of the porn industry yes or to the idea that fred might participate fred of all people sure at caritas because where else was fred going to go (laughs) at caritas fred goes to lauren for guidance but finds the bar still destroyed in the aftermath of that old gang of mine. He tells her that she hasn't run enough from the monsters pursuing her. And it turns out that Willow was right so long ago. A vague disclaimer is nobody's friend. (laughs) This is the crystallization of everything that is wrong with the first half of the story. Lorne talking ominously about Fred's parents. Lorne emphasizing the need to run. Mm -hmm. This is... A little undermotivated. Well, here's the thing. Lorne is the one who always speaks the truth at the heart of everything. The things which we deny, but which are essentially true underneath. So when Lorne makes a statement, you believe Lorne. You believe what he says. When he says your problem isn't that you haven't run far enough from these lovely people who love you and are wonderful, you know, that's... Well, okay. I think that is so deliberately misleading as to be gaslighting. And it also compromises Lorne's believability, which is one of the things that he's always had. So I feel like it compromises his character. It compromises this story that we're dealing with. And then later on, we're just going to flip a switch and turn around on it. And oh, no, it's fine. I feel like it's defensible if only with specific regard to Lorne's family. Mm -hmm. Because he, of all people, understands what it's like to be disconnected from your family, not just by circumstance, but by personal narrative, by identity. Right. So I can see there being some kind of overlap. I think, Except that her family, his family is hateful and awful. Her family loves her her and is wonderful to her. And he knows this. She sang in front of him. That's true. But 
her family is about to bring her a great deal of pain through no fault of their own, but she is about to suffer because of this reconciliation. I think that the emotional beat that we get Mm -hmm. is more ambitious, more complex, more rewarding. Yeah than we have any reason to expect at this point in the story. But what leads up to it is kind of yeah. cheap. It is. I don't care for it. Yeah, we don't necessarily need the false conflict here. And you're right, co-opting Lauren into that, I do think that we can we can try to allow for his response mm-hmm. here. We, we can try to explain and headcanon his yeah. response here. But it is still pretty thin yeah it is it's not it's not playing fair with the viewer also butted right up against some of my favorite lorne ever in this episode well let's actually cover the next scene and then we'll talk a little about lorne at the library there's no sign of the missing burkle in the sewer angel has amazing cell phone reception all while being watched by a bug demon (laughs) at caritas then Gun is unwelcome, and Lauren refuses to play along with the monster movie Charade. He is tired of being used as an exposition gotcha pawn and definitely isn't covering for... Fine, Fred was here, but she didn't <laughs> want to see her parents. I love this. Yeah. This episode to me has been pretty solid mm-hmm. up to this point. I like the Angel stuff. I like the Fred stuff. I like the Investigateur stuff. It's been funny. It's been pretty fast on its feet. There's a nice undercurrent of something ominous. Yeah. That ultimately is not going to manifest completely, but that's okay at, at this yeah. point, sure. <laughs> but this is the turning point in the episode mm-hmm. for me. Let's talk about Lorne. I love, because Lorne kind of has been our, you know, vending machine of mysticism. Right. You know, he's... Vending he's, machine, crucially not a slot machine. It, crucially not a <laughs> slot machine. Completely different kind of machine. Know your machines. So I really love that he is there. He's got this business. He's depressed. He's wearing terry cloth, yep. which is not Lorne, right? So we have Lorne in this state where his business has been ruined. He's had this horrible traumatic experience. Uh, Fred comes in and she's like, well, why hasn't it been picked up? And he's like, whatever, lady. You know, oh. I mean, I really love this new Lorne that actually has, you know, one of the things that we we talk about a lot when we give writing advice is that all of your characters are the heroes of their own stories. So when Lorne is always together, always happy, always there to, to give the advice and the pat on the back, and the inspirational words, but never really seems to have any problems of his own, never seems to have any focus on his own thing. I love this moment where he, I mean, he's obviously covering for Fred with part of it, but he really is genuinely upset. And oh, when Gunn comes in, yes. he sends Gunn out, which is that's, really nice. That's, I think, completely unprecedented yeah. in Angel. I can't remember a moment that has been that forceful or true to character. Mm-hmm. The characterization throughout this episode is just extraordinary, and Lorne shines. Yes. Of course, partly we can blame Andy Hallett's performance for that, because he is as good in this episode as he has ever been. No, but they've but given the script him his own itself, thing. Yeah. I love that. It's amazing. And also, we have to comment about, about the identity politics in play yeah. here, because Lorne refuses to... To I guess I was going to say dehumanize himself, but but dehumanize himself. himself. Yes, exactly. He refuses to play a part in order to accommodate the perceptions of Fred's parents. I love that, and that's anchored in a kind of bristly antagonism, anyway. Mm-hmm. But also in Lauren's sense of who he is. Right. That line about those are fake horns and makeup. Mm-hmm. The those yeah. aren't fake, and it's just a little line. It's line. just a little. Not only is that a great joke, but it's a great piece of characterization. Mm -hmm. And when he talks to Angel, he is wounded and and prideful and complicated. 
this is just extraordinary right. work. And even though he's covering for Fred, all of this is genuine. Yeah. You know, and I love the fact that we've characterized this guy this, and we've given him his own point of view. This is what I was saying back at the beginning of the episode. The false foreshadowing of Fred's parents, you know, hostility mm-hmm. and antagonism aside, everything else in the episode is really beautifully motivated. Mm-hmm. There's very little scaffolding of any kind evident in this episode. I love that we're calling back to that old gang of mine. I love that there is an ongoing grudge between Lauren and Gunn, that Gunn is aware of it, that once again, we're not belittling or sidelining our characters. Gunn knows why Lauren feels the way that he feels, and he respects that. And Gunn respects that, which I really love. He completely understands. It's fantastic No, I think it's it's really, really nice. This is absolutely the moment where this episode just... Just Mm -hmm. wins me over completely. At the bus station, Fred is reciting the digits of Pi to calm herself down when the investigateurs and her parents arrive. She breaks. Returning to her real life makes what happened to her on Pylea real, too. They hug, just in time for the creepy bug demon to drop from the ceiling. (laughs) The emotional sophistication with which we approach Fred's situation here, it it just amazes me. Mm -hmm. This is so ambitious and thank goodness that we've got amy acker in this role because she's capable of communicating all of it the hope and the vulnerability and the desperation and the denial of it Mm -hmm. being unable to to reconnect with her parents because as soon as she reconnects with her parents the story stops being a story and starts becoming her history Mm -hmm. is is so complex Mm -hmm. I, i just love it how does that work for you no i think it's really really nice i feel like in that moment it the the drama of it like the screaming drama of it is a bit much for me but i think that's just like a personal response to it um i would have liked for all of this to have been just a touch more subtle but i do like the movement of the the emotional understanding itself and i love that we open up this story with her telling the story telling the fairy tale to Angel, right. you know, of of her history, um, and that it is a story. She, it is a book, you know, mm-hmm. to her in that moment. But once she sees her parents, it all becomes real. I wish that we had made all of our references to the to whatever is going on here a little more consistent with that, because all of a sudden we have this understanding, and everything just drops. Suddenly, these people are not evil; they're not a problem. They're wonderful, lovely people, and yeah. we just sort of pick up and pretend that we didn't just gaslight the audience for the first half of the episode. I think gaslighting is a little strong. Certainly, there was an eh. implication that isn't yeah. completely substantiated by the turn that the plot takes, and I do agree that. I feel as though this moment of exposition is a little heightened in order to try and validate Mm -hmm. all of this false foreshadowing that we've had in the first half of the episode. Mm -hmm. But it works for me so comprehensively Mm -hmm. as the definitive take on who Fred is at this moment in time. It works for me just beautifully. I love it conceptually. I do think we went a little big in this moment to justify again that foreshadowing, yeah. which was a bit much. Uh, but conceptually, I really do like it. Yeah, there's a lot to love. And and overall, as longtime listeners to Dusted will know, in general, I respond very positively to ambition. Yes. And this is character work that displays and that, that delivers more ambition than we've seen from Angel in 
a good long while. Yeah. This is this is a great take. Put on, on your seatbelts, baby. It's season three. Absolutely. <laughs> Angel sends everyone outside and then joins them a moment later by crashing through the plate glass door. They battle the bug demon, but when Fred gets hurt, her father intervenes to protect her. Things look bad until Trish Burkle smashes the bug with a bus, <laughs> destroying it completely. Okay. I actually... Okay, hitting the thing with the bus is a little bit, like, again, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit, but I love this moment. First of all, earlier in the episode, we have that moment where she says, well, when I was doing my rounds, and then Cordy says, oh, you're a doctor. No wonder Fred is so smart. She says, no, I drive a bus. So I kind of love the callback (laughs) here. But my favorite thing is when she comes out, Trish comes out of the bus in victory she's so like proud of herself where fred gets it right no i really i love i love that moment when she gets off the bus i like this entire fight sequence Mm -hmm. i think the bug demon and and this i think is where we disagree a little Mm -hmm. i think the bug demon for 2001 looks fantastic (laughs) there are some frame rate issues but for a show with angel's budget a show with Angel's production schedule and for the technology available in 2001, I think this bug looks really, really impressive. But more importantly, I love the way that the entire fight is handled. We get this really choppy camera work. Mm-hmm. It is not Angel House style. Yeah. Angel House style is we'll lock off the camera about 20 feet back and we'll let our very talented stunt performers yes, exactly. do the thing that they do. <laughs> but we can't do that here, mm-hmm. partly because we can't afford that amount of CGI. So it's much more impressionistic. Mm-hmm. And for me, it works beautifully. Yeah, I I don't think it does. I The bugs themselves, like if you take a still shot, I think that they work pretty well. It is the movement of the bugs. It is the fact that we have these stuttering camera shots, but only when we go to the bugs. So it looks more like a mistake than something that was deliberately folded in to be part of the scene. So I actually really hate the bugs. Some scenes are better than other scenes, I think. The moment when the bug drops from the ceiling, for Uh example, I think is really impressive because there's a sense of weight and kineticism, which was really hard to do in Uh CGI in 2001 on a TV show budget, I should say. But you're right. There are these other shots, particularly when we get to the Hyperion yeah, later, later when the bug on. shows up mm-hmm. again. There are shots where you're right. The frame rate is is stuttering mm-hmm. to cover for the animation of the bug, and it doesn't it doesn't work. Yeah. There are those moments when it doesn't work, but then we'll intersperse that with a with a shot that is perfectly fluid and mm-hmm. well proportioned and genuinely impressive. More importantly than the execution, though, I like what the bug demons do for the mm-hmm. purposes of this story. They are completely unlike the bug demons that we have seen previously. I suppose the closest reference point we have here is all the way back in Buffy yeah. with Teacher's Pat. Well, I don't know. I think, didn't we get it in this old gang of mine when we had that that guy, who the demon who unfolded true, into a praying man and bit the head off of Geo? I think we have something... Kind of similar to to this recently, but yeah, these these bugs though, this this praying mantis kind of weird <laughs> stick bug, um, is is tough to pull off we because like when we have a, a demon look. that's not based on human anatomy, that we can't just put like demon makeup on a human actor, it becomes really difficult to make yes. that feel real. But I like that here because a we get to preserve the ambiguity of the motivation. Sure, mm-hmm. the bugs. We don't know what they want or what mm-hmm. they're after at this point, which means that the reveal at the end of the episode is easier to support. We also 
get to confront the Burkles with something that is completely outside of the range of their experience. Yeah. This mm-hmm. can't be covered by makeup, by, by monster stories. Movies. And that. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we're forcing the the narrative into a separate channel here, which I think works well, and they're really well. reclaiming their children, which I think at least thematically has yep. a reference back to what we're talking about as well. Couldn't agree more. Back at the Hyperion, the Burkles are on board with the idea of demons and monsters and Cordelia's really half-assed bandaging. <laughs> I mean, take a class. This is a major part of your job. Fred gives us a quick overview of the mechanics of the five-man band with one minor error. Gun is the muscle, Cordelia is the heart, but Wesley isn't the smart guy. He's Angel's Lancer. Yeah. Which, for those of you playing the home version of our game, leaves a job open. Yes. I cannot believe that we get such a confident, such an explicit in-universe reference to the five-man band construct. Exactly. And that, you know, Fred seeing herself as not having a role to play actually does have a role to play. She is the smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding the mechanics of mm-hmm. that, that's really beautiful. Do you want to give a quick gloss of the five-man band for listeners who may have joined us since we discussed it all the way back in, I don't know, Buffy season two, oh, sure. maybe? <laughs> Or anybody who's been to our Patreon channel might have heard us talk about it when we talked about leverage. Sure. Uh, But the five-man band is a classic team protagonist construction where we have our hero, Mm -hmm. who is the main character, the main part of the team, the main protagonist. Oftentimes eponymous. (laughs) Oftentimes, as in, let's say, angel. Sure. Um, And then we have the Lancer. The Lancer is the best friend. The Lancer is often a foil character. The Lancer is the person who can see things from a perspective that our eponymous hero character sometimes cannot and is able to reflect back um, onto that character maybe some of the things that they are lacking. So that becomes our Lancer character, which Wesley fills very nicely. Then we have the heart of the team, the emotional center, the person who pulls everybody together and understands the emotions that everybody is going through, the person who has the big long talks at night, you know, with whoever is suffering that week. That is Cordelia. And oftentimes unifies the team, which is explicitly textually what Cordelia is doing. Yes, and unifies the the team too through they need that center. Oh, You'll yeah. see that yeah. those of you who've seen Guardians of the Galaxy may recognize Groot in that yes. role as well. Um, and then we've got the big guy who is the muscle, who is the guy who can go out and beat anything up at any time, anywhere with any axe that you give him. He can make it happen. That's gun. Then the final role is the smart guy, the one who knows, who has the knowledge and the science and the ability to put all of these theories together to figure out what's going on and deliver, sadly, a lot of expositions. <laughs> um, Wesley has filled this role in a lot of ways. He has kind of also been the smart guy. But by opening up this role to Fred, we can really have Wesley yeah. focus on his main role, which is as the Lancer. Well, and in serial ensemble stories, we will move forward. From see some role shuffling. to role yes. as the plot demands it. We see that all the time over in Buffy, where for mm-hmm. the first five seasons of that show, Willow and Giles would alternate out who yes. was the Lancer who was and the who Lancer, was the, who smart, was the guy, smart guy, right. depending on the needs of the episode. If mm-hmm. it's a school or college-oriented story, then Willow more often than not is going to serve the role of yes. the Lancer. Mm-hmm. If it's a larger story where Giles is acting more as Buffy's watcher rather mm-hmm. than as a source of exposition, then we'll oftentimes use Willow as the smart guy mm-hmm. so that we can and deliver that necessary exposition. It is a really flexible, really powerful structure. You're absolutely right. Guardians of the Galaxy mm-hmm. gives us a great five-man band. Yes. The TV show Leverage, as we mentioned before, gives us a great five-man band. And this is the first time that we have had a five-man band 
in Angel. Yes, but now that we've filled it out, now that we've added Fred, now that we've opened up space for Wesley to really focus on being the Lancer character, we have opened up the kinds of stories that we can tell and the things that we can do. It gives you a lot of flexibility. There's a reason why a lot of stories with teen protagonists go to this trope. Mm -hmm. This happens a lot in television shows because we need more than one protagonist. We need a team in order to be able to tell all the different kinds of stories that we want to tell. Uh, You can find out more about the Five Man Band if you go to TV tropes.org there will be a link in the show notes Um, and there's and let me just tell you something if you go to tvtropes.org be prepared to lose hours and hours and hours of your life because you will go in for the five man band but you will stay for everything else and while you're there look up the glittery hoo-ha Oh, yes, you're on TV Tropes. I'm just Tropes, saying, I'm on, I'm on TV Tropes. <laughs> this is a perfect <laughs> example of the five-man band. And what's better yet mm-hmm. is that at the end of the episode, Fred is going to, without any acknowledgement whatsoever, play the role of the smart guy in the team mm-hmm. and offer all the necessary expositions so that we can overcome the challenge. Yeah. It's just a gorgeous, it's really gorgeous nice. construction. Fred, though, has decided that the best thing she can do is go home. In her room, she and Angel talk. She gives a comprehensive catalogue of human emotion and then tells the story of the girl in the cave so far from home. Angel saved her once, but he can't save her again. This is, I mean, luminous. This scene does not put a foot wrong. And as I mentioned earlier, recontextualizes all of our discussions about Fred and mm-hmm. the cave and the writing on the wall, her sense of her own internal narrative, the disconnection between her life on Earth, her time on Pylea, and then her return to Earth, her time in this liminal state caught between worlds. You know, mm-hmm. she hasn't reintegrated into her life. That's what her parents represent here. The pain of, of physical reentry. Yeah. This is... I mean, this is so good. No, it's really, really nice. And this is all about the story that she's telling and separating herself from her reality by telling her life as a story rather Mm -hmm. than recognizing it as her real life. And this is one of the things, too, when we talk about this like manic pixie damaged dream girl, you Mm know, um, that that one of her quirks is that she writes on the wall. And so we're going to use this as a joke forever. That's a very thin usage of this. And that's the kind of thing that prior to this moment, you could be accused of like, you could look at this and say, yeah, that looks pretty thin. It looks like super, super quirky Fred, you know? Exactly. But here we've actually landed it with a real narrative purpose. We're talking about the difference between the story that you tell, the narrativization of your life and the real life that you actually have to live. And I think that this is a beautiful representation of that and absolutely earns its space. The writing on the wall in this moment, in this episode, earns its space in the prior five episodes. This is one of my favorite scenes in Mm -hmm. the entire run of Angel. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely, for me personally, what I go to Angel for. It's just so good. Back in the lobby, Trish throws some shade on the fourth Alien movie, which (laughs) was written by some guy called Joss Whedon. I don't know if that's important. And then it is time for Fred to say goodbye. She hugs Gunn and Wesley... With a little chemistry. Yeah. And Cordelia in turn and thanks Angel and then is gone. But in the taxi, Fred notices the bug demon residue on her sweater and turns the car around. Back in the Hyperion, Wesley is airing some grievances about his own parents and they're all lamenting the absence of a normal life. At which point, Chekhov's severed demon head begins unpleasantly to pulsate. I love this i think it would be possible to accuse this episode of wallowing a little Mm -hmm. in its own sentimentality almost 
we're spending a lot of time on Fred leaving. And Fred, as we know, is not really going to leave. Yeah. So is that wasted time? Well, I think not, because it allows us a really profound insight into our entire cast. We get a really strong take on Wesley here. We mm -hmm. get a stronger take on Cordelia than we've had all season long, mm -hmm. really. This idea of a wistfulness, yeah. a kind of wistful desire for a normal life. What we do here is good and important and necessary, and I wouldn't change it, but also... If you could get out, yeah. if you could have that other life, then wouldn't that be a fine thing? Well, and it shows this really nice, like, loving sense of sacrifice that yeah. they are not asking Fred to stay because Fred has the thing that none of these people have ever had. Obviously, we know Angel's history with his father and how difficult that was. Mm -hmm. We are getting a lot of references to Wesley's difficult childhood. Uh, Cordelia, we know her parents were not that great. Yep. Um, and Gunn, we can only presume that that either his parents were were killed or something Something happened because he and his, his sister yes, were on their own. Exactly. At very Given young the relationship age. between Gunn mm -hmm. and his sister, that does suggest that they, they were fending for themselves for quite a while. So yeah, yeah, this is a group of people without a single positive, you know, parental role model among them. Or that don't have that option. Like exactly. if Gunn's parents might have been great, but they'd been killed. Sure. Then, you know, he doesn't have the option of going back into a normal world. They all have been through their experiences, through everything that has molded them, unable to to not be a part of this yeah. world. But Fred has a chance to leave and even though they're going to miss her and they love her and she was you know fun to have around um they are all releasing her without question you know yeah, and the, i think that's a really like the the loving sacrifice is a really beautiful thing to witness the farewell scene itself i think works beautifully mm -hmm. exactly because of that loving yeah. sacrifice i think you're completely right and again we get this completely open acknowledgement of mm -hmm. fred's feelings for angel yeah she's acknowledged now too that they have been narrativized that, mm -hmm. that it's not entirely about angel the yeah. man standing in front of her it's also about the idea of him but in that moment we don't ridicule her there's no forced awkwardness there's mm -hmm. no forced discomfort we don't do anything to alleviate the emotional intensity of that moment and that is absolutely to the show's credit yes it is i think it's a really nice moment and mm -hmm. i love that we return to the hyperion and allow our characters some some time, some reflection yeah. here. It it expands our understanding of all of them. I, mm -hmm. I just love it. Cordelia says goodnight and goes out into the lobby just in time to see an army of the bug demons. But Fred arrives in the nick of time, having realized that the Dursler's head was full of baby bugs. The bug demons gather up their young and leave Fred to the exposition. She's realized that this is what she's supposed to do here in L.A. with Angel and the investigators. She's not normal anymore, but she does have a home. And as soon as someone diagrams the five-man band for her, she'll even have a job. <laughs> and later, everyone helps Fred paint her room, erasing the story of the past and giving her a fresh start. And if what we've done with Fred, what we've done with her cave, what we've mm -hmm. done with the writing on the wall has been effective and complex and fascinating throughout the episode yeah this is the perfect resolution to the extended metaphor yeah it is her real family and her found family coming together to give her that fresh start mm -hmm. and then we cap it with a moment of even more sublime writing oh god with yeah. her painting over the sketch of the two people on horseback yeah. her and angel the rescued princess and the hero who came to find her it's so 
good. No, that is really nice. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about mm-hmm. Fredless. I don't disagree with you on any of your objections to the story. I just don't care. What we get from it is so effective, is so unusual, mm-hmm. is so ambitious, is so sophisticated that I can absolutely acknowledge that we don't play entirely fair with the audience, that we under-motivate some things in the first 20 minutes or so, that maybe the Bug Demon special effects don't look as good as they could. <laughs> Had we gone with a more traditional practical mm-hmm. effect, I can acknowledge all of that and I don't care because what we get isn't just fantastic, but is also unique in the run of Angel. Mm -hmm. We haven't had an episode like this. The closest we've come have been the biggest episodes that we've seen, or some of the biggest episodes that we've seen. You know, I'm thinking about Hero. I'm thinking about Parting Gifts to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. I'm thinking about Dead Ends, which, by the way, is number one on our list right now. (laughs) I think that this is almost unprecedented and almost, yes, unique in the run of Angel. And I just... Love it. How does the episode work for you overall? Okay, I do like this episode. There's a lot of stuff in this episode that I like. I do feel like conceptually we have a lot stronger work going on than we do in the actual execution of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like that we sacrifice Lauren's characters so that we can mislead the audience into something that's that's never going to pay off and that isn't part of what we're doing. At the same time, there's so much stuff here. I love all the stuff that you love. I think it's great. I love <laughs> the painting over of the image of the the people on horseback at the end is beautiful. The the narrativization of of Fred's existence of her her experience what this does you know with her parents parents coming back makes it all real takes it out of narrative and makes it real and she actually has to face you know what happened to her I like that we take a whole episode to solidify that Fred belongs and is part of the team um, I love the contraption maybe it makes toast I think that that is adorable there are a whole <laughs> bunch of things in here that I think are really really great and I especially love Lauren once we've stopped co-opting opting him into our our misleading um, gambit there. Um, I think that Lauren is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love the way that he um, defends his space, that he defends his right to feel the way that he's feeling, that he defends his own deem. Demonity? What's the demon sure. version of humanity? Sure. Something like that. But that he like he he defends his identity. He knows what he is and he's not gonna lie about that. I love all of this stuff. I just think that our execution here falters enough that it, it takes away from some of the good stuff for me. Yeah. I just don't see it. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. To particularly as a counterpoint to what we're doing over in Buffy mm-hmm. right now, because of course we're also telling a similar story. Metaphorically, yeah. we're telling a similar story. Buffy has gone through this experience. Now, Buffy's experience was wonderful. It was blissful. Mm -hmm. And she's been forced back into the world. But by that process of reconnection, she is experiencing the enormity of what she left behind and what she is now confronted with. And the same is true for Fred. I don't think that it's intentional. I think at this point we've seen a pretty thorough split between the, the writing rooms here. But I love that we're seeing these two opposite approaches to a very similar kind of core metaphor. Mm -hmm. For me, Fred's is more effective. Yeah, I think so. This Mm -hmm. story is, is that much more subtle and sweet and emotionally immediate. But above all other things, what I love most about this episode is that we don't that we don't dehumanize anyone, that Mm -hmm. we don't belittle anyone. We don't sideline anyone. Everyone gets to have their own emotional response, mm-hmm. whatever that may be, and we acknowledge and respect it. 
this is for me, and I'm only really coming to this understanding as we discuss the episode, but this is for me the first episode where the investigators really have felt like a family. Mm-hmm. Where it's not just an ensemble cast, yeah. where it's not just a collection of internal conflicts, but they really feel like like a unit, like a family for the first time. And that's, you know, one of my favorite yes. things about Buffy, mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about Angel. I just love this version of this team. Mm-hmm. And particularly knowing what's coming, particularly yeah. knowing what we're going to do for the rest of the season, what we're going to do really for the rest of the run of the show, knowing how many of these stories end simply heightens the bittersweet elements of this yeah. this moment of of complete integration. I just, I can't say enough good things about it. Okay. I, I completely acknowledge. I don't think that you're you're out of line at all calling out some of the execution stuff. Um, certainly the scene with Lauren, I think, is the least fair. Mm-hmm. But we do foreshadow the parents to excess. And I just don't think that we need it. I just don't think that it serves the story. We don't need to create this tension we can be concerned about fred simply because she has run away well yeah and because you know she's run away from her parents i think that there's enough reason there to be like concerned about what's what's going on with fred um i don't think that we need to do that i think that i and i i just don't care for how much energy we spend on that i also don't care for for the goofy gun that we get seems like we've given up on goofy wesley thank you and we've sort of gone into this gun is like his obsession over wow your private detective found you because of an envelope and he's Oh, I love that. Obsessed about that. If, professional jealousy from uh, Gunn is great. It feels, if, well, to me, it reads as as professional insecurity, which is something that I think a man who's killed a number of demons shouldn't necessarily have. But also that we just spend so much time playing that joke in that scene that it just gets a little <laughs> bit. And I feel like we don't give Gunn the nice thing. The best thing that we give to Gunn is that moment in Caritas where he looks at Lauren and says, yeah, I'll wait outside. You know, like, yeah, I, I like I, that from Gunn. I don't think we get our best Gunn in this episode either. I'm not sure that I would completely disagree. I don't think this is is record-setting gun. Yeah. I don't think this is series-best gun. But Goofy Gun bothers me less than Goofy Wesley ever did because yes. the goofiness is an inherent part of who Gun is. He is a goofy guy. We can think back to his introduction where he was, you know, turned mm-hmm. up to 11, admittedly. Yeah. But he was the wisecracking guy. Mm-hmm. And we've we've muted that a little, but at least it feels as though it comes from character. I completely disagree with you about the, the private detective stuff. <laughs> You're right. Gunn has a lot of experience killing demons, mm-hmm. but he hasn't actually been a private detective for very long. Or, let's be honest, shown any real aptitude for it. But he's the big guy. And he actually has been, I think, pretty smart throughout a lot of the, the mysteries that we've had. So I don't know. I just don't feel don't like know. it serves Gunn very well. I could write a list, I think, of all the times Gunn has actually meaningfully contributed to the investigation. Investigation well, but he's of the something. big guy. I mean, his job, no, his sure. role, he's good at what he does. You know, but, but he's also not stupid. I you know? like, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I like that he's got this this note of professional jealousy, yeah. this the idea that he can improve his skills. That, to me, actually works I didn't care for that, yeah. So, I don't know. Let's go, I guess, to the list. Sure. Give me your opening gambit. Where do you think this, this should go? This is perhaps a surprisingly short discussion, mm-hmm. as they tend to be when we agree yes. on things like mm-hmm. this. For me... I've got to tell you, this is at least a top five episode okay. for me. My my immediate instinct is paradoxical. Mm-hmm. I think that it is a better episode than To Shanshu in LA, which is currently number two on the list. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's 
quite as good as 5 by 5 and Sanctuary, which is currently number three on the list. And this is really difficult because of the disparate primary values that we're dealing with here. Oh, this really is a character-based yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. We are just looking deeply into who Fred is. That's overdue and valuable and wonderful and thoroughly enjoyable, but it's not a big plot episode. Mm-hmm. So it's an apples to oranges comparison. Yeah. If I have to just, you know, go with my gut, I'm going to to break one of the lines that we break only under the direst of circumstances. Yes. I'm going to say that this is better than I will remember you. Okay. I think this goes in at number four, right under five by five in Sanctuary, right above I will remember you. But personally, mm-hmm. for me, I think this is my favorite. I think this goes <laughs> Honestly, at number one, I would rather okay. watch this episode than watch Dead End. I absolutely agree that that analytically, mm-hmm. Dead End exceeds, I think, what we do in Friendless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, for, for what I go to Angel for, this is, this is it. This is it right here. Okay. Well, I like this episode a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't like it that much. <laughs> um, Surprising no one, I will sure. tell you, I Will Remember You is kind of a hard line for me. Um, I Will Remember You has sat on this list yes. as the dividing line between <laughs> the genuinely exceptional and the just really good. And the just really good. And I would put this in the just really good. Um, I think that at number five below, I will remember you and above Carpe Noctum is a place that I can, I can absolutely place this. I, I, I don't think I can go above. I will remember you. I think that is like my, my hard ceiling on this because I think that what we do and I will remember you is uh, much more powerfully told. It's much more skillfully told and it does something, I think much bigger than what we do in Fredless. Oh, see, While I at the same disagree. time, I, you know, I like a lot of the stuff that we do in Fredless. I do think that we have some stuff in here that is not that great. That kind of drags it down a little bit for me. If it was executed perfectly aligned to the, the quality of the concept work in here, I think I'd probably be with you, but because it wasn't that drags it down a little bit for me. I don't necessarily want this conversation to come down to (laughs) the idea that Fredless is executed imperfectly. And I will remember you is executed perfectly because that I don't think is necessarily representative of of the no, truth I'm of that No, I'm not making episode. that claim. I'm just saying that I Will Remember You is better. And I Will Remember You <laughs> has been very near the top of our list for mm-hmm. the longest time. Yeah. For me, this is still better. But I can concede I always knew that getting you to put Fredless above <laughs> I Will Remember You would be an uphill battle. Yes. And I'm I'm fine with that. Okay. I think certainly it has to go above Carpe Noctum. I mean, there's no oh, I think so. There's no argument at all mm-hmm. for me that that suggests that this episode is in any way inferior to Carpe Noctum. And we're still see here. I think is the compromise. Mm-hmm. We've talked for a while about the clear blue water under I Will Remember You. Yes. That there's actually, despite the fact that I will remember you is at four and Carpe Noctum is at five, there's a gulf there in terms of quality. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. For me. There isn't a gulf between I Will Remember You and Fredless. Okay. The gulf exists between Fredless and Carpe Noctum. I see. So no, if we I, can, I, if we I'm can with you there. draw some more I'm subtle distinctions no, here absolutely. on our entirely arbitrary list. Absolutely. No, I, I will. I mean, you know, Fredless, honestly, like that's that's as high as I think I would go with Fredless. But but I'm I'm with you there. I think that it is better than Carpe Noctum. Well, never let it be said that we cannot compromise that's true. here on Dusted. This has been, though, a really fun conversation. It has. I love what we get out of this episode. That will do it for today. We'll be back on Thursday with our thoughts on episode five of season six of Buffy Life Serial, in which Buffy is targeted by the geek trio. Can I make a confession? Yes. Okay.
Okay. Um, for years. Did you just get the pun? Did yeah. you just get it? No, I did. Because I've always just read it. Wait. Like I've never really talked about it. But then when I hear you say life cereal, I was like, oh, because of the cereal. The C E R E A. Surreal? No, for okay. real. You're I, admitting no, this on the podcast. It, I didn't happen. I didn't have this realization right now. It was a little bit earlier, but I will say it was during the run of Dustin. Okay, the I've fact that, that you are admitting that right now on the show <laughs> means that we are going back to the big list, and we are putting Fredless right above. I will remember you at number. Yeah. Okay. No, I wish you the best of luck with that. <laughs> then next Monday we get a closer look at the guy Angel sprung from demon prison to save Cordelia on episode six of season three of Angel Billy. It's a good run of episodes right now, it isn't is it? It is a good run of episodes. I'm enjoying Dusted enormously right yeah. now. <laughs> if you've got thoughts and would like to share them with us, please visit storywonk.com slash contact for more information on all the ways to get in touch. Or follow at Storywonk on Twitter for the latest updates, announcements, and weird contraptions that can make toast and behead a demon all at once. It slices, it dices, it does both to toast and demons. <laughs> is what I, it does two things, yes. but it's applicable to a number of different things. You need one in your kitchen. That is it for today. If you like what we do here on Dusted, visit storywonk.com to find out about our other Storywonk podcasts covering things like Outlander, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Harry Potter, Veronica Mars, Star Wars. If it's cool, we've either talked about it or we will someday. Visit storywonk.com to find out more. Until next time, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusted. Los Angeles that appears like the regular Los Angeles to the rest of us. It's sure. just that angel traffics in the dark under beast, if you will. So, um, <laughs> well, no, I do know what to think All about right, angels dark, dark under, under beast. beast. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs>